your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Welcome aboard. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bismuth, and samarium. Let me pose that again. What is Piranha Solution? What is Piranha Solution? And let me add a new question. The 1927 Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology went to psychiatrist Julius Wagner Joreg, Austrian, for his use of pyrotherapy. What is pyrotherapy? If you know the answer to either one of those questions or to both, 514-790-0800 is our number. You can also text us to 514-800. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. My background is chemistry, and as I like to say, chemistry is the thread that holds all the other sciences together because everything in the world is based on the reaction of molecules. And if you have a feel for what molecules can and cannot do, which is, of course, what chemistry is all about, you get a pretty good feel for what can and cannot happen and uh, how things work. Talking about how things work, uh, I was looking into melatonin. Now, melatonin, of course, is uh, widely regarded as the Dracula hormone because it is produced in the body only during hours of darkness and it uh, controls our circadian cycle. Uh, during the day, uh, it's not produced at all. And then as darkness sets in, it starts to be produced by the pineal gland in the brain. And that uh, sort of sends the message that it is time to go to sleep. Anytime that you start looking into melatonin and the pineal gland, I can guarantee you that you will come across an article, whether it's in the scientific literature or whether it's in the lay press, where they will talk about the pineal gland being so-called because of its resemble, resemblance to a pine cone. And usually the reference is made to Galen, the Greek physician who spent most of his life in, in Rome, who is said to have been the first to describe this distinctive cone shape of the gland. So anyway, I got interested in that the resemblance of the pineal gland to the pine cone. So I start looking up. Uh, I look in the textbooks of anatomy. I look at uh, images on the internet. And uh, first of all, you know, it's pretty hard to, to find images of, of uh, uh, the pineal gland. It's a very small gland. It's about the size of a, you know, a large grain of rice smack in the middle of the brain. But anyway, I couldn't find anything that resembled the pine cone at all. So I figured I better have a closer look at this. Did Galen really say this? So I dug up some of the literature about uh, what Galen uh, actually wrote. And it turns out that he never referred to the cone shape of the uh, pineal gland. He described it as being the shape of the pine nut. Now, indeed, the pine nut is found inside of the pine cone. And that does make sense because the little gland does actually look uh, like that. 
Now, this, of course, it's uh, it's not an earth-shaking mistake that that uh, everyone you know has made since that time, but it just goes to show you how repeating something, even though it's wrong, uh, becomes true just by uh, repetition. So the pineal gland actually is shaped like a pine nut, not like the pine cone. But uh, of course, there's more to this this story than just uh, that uh, uh, sort of um, curiosity. What does this tiny gland actually do? Well, Galen, uh, who described it, really had no idea. In fact, Galen never carried out dissections on people because uh, ancient Rome frowned on this. Uh, it was not acceptable to carry out uh, uh, autopsies, which in fact is a term that was coined by Galen. Uh, that was not acceptable. So he did experiment on all kinds of animals. That's true. He used uh, cats and dogs and barnyard animals of all kinds. And uh, in one case, even an elephant. But it was while he was uh, doing a dissection on the brain of an ox that he came across the pineal gland. And indeed, he did describe it as being the shape of a, of a pine nut. But as I said, he would have had no idea back in those days what uh, this gland actually did. That came much, much, much later. Uh, in fact, the, the connection that we're interested in, which is the connection to the uh, circadian cycle, that only goes back to about 1975. And Richard Wirtman, working at uh, MIT in, uh, in Boston, a very highly respected uh, uh, scientist, neuroscientist, and he was the first one to make this, this connection because he found that uh, taking urine samples from healthy adult volunteers that were collected between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. had much more melatonin in them than samples taken during the day. And he surmised that that melatonin was somehow connected to the day-night cycle, which, of course, also introduced the possibility of helping people who are some kind of trouble because of the, the sleep-wake cycle, either because of jet lag or because they just have trouble uh, falling asleep. So he carried out a number of experiments with volunteers, giving them very small doses of melatonin in the evening to see whether or not uh, the melatonin levels in their body would rise and whether or not they would uh, tend to become more sleepy. <clears throat> Turned out that uh, he had some positive results here. And he actually patented uh, melatonin supplements ranging from 0.3 to 1 milligram. And uh, it turned out, though, that patenting this was not of much use because the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. ruled that since melatonin was found to occur naturally in some foods like tart cherries and some nuts and goji berries, it fell into the category of dietary supplement and it could be sold without a prescription. So uh, as you might imagine, there was a lot of publicity about melatonin and sleep because so many people have problems sleeping. And this is when marketing got into the game with the more is better. That became a common promotional theme. And pills containing up to 10 milligrams of melatonin flooded the market. Well, Wirtman warned 
that the safety and efficacy of high doses had not been established. But nevertheless, you know, the uh, consumer philosophy, if a little is good, more must be better, uh, well, that held sway with the public. Then there was another issue. Dietary supplements, as I've told you many times, are not regulated as carefully as prescription drugs. And surveys found that the melatonin content of supplements ranged from being 83% less to almost 500% more than what was declared on the label. So when it comes to dietary supplements, you don't really know what you're getting. And it's, it's, it's just a, a guessing game. Well, since uh, Wertman carried out his original experiments, there have been a number of other studies on, on melatonin with numerous doses, and results are, are totally inconsistent. Some studies show help in people falling asleep, help with jet lag, especially if you're traveling in an eastward direction. But uh, there are other studies that, that do not corroborate that. Well, I'll add a little bit of my own experience uh, with this. Uh, because uh, I've uh, got problems sleeping, as, as many people, you know, as they get older do. So I decided, you know, I'd give melatonin a try. And um, what I now find is that uh, a sublingual spray works better than a pill. And a single spray, which according to the label contains one milligram of melatonin, used one to two hours before my intended bedtime, it works sometimes, <laughs> not always. And certainly I've not found that more is better. So I don't find any reason to take more than one milligram of, of uh, melatonin. Anyway, that's my, my experience. But there's something else to keep in mind. Light impairs the production of melatonin, especially blue wavelengths emitted by TV screens and laptops and even alarm clocks. So watching TV in bed while using an iPad to check the latest research on melatonin, as I did, that's not very conducive to good sleep. Uh, so I was kind of excited when I came across a study that shows that sleeping under a weighted blanket uh, might work because subjects who slept under a weighted blanket had higher levels of melatonin in their saliva. So that was interesting. So I checked into this further. And the last, as with the pinecone story, uh, I found that, you know, when you look at the details, it's uh, somewhat different. It turns out that while subjects with the weighted blankets had higher melatonin levels in their saliva, that's true, their total sleep time did not improve. So from now on, maybe I'll give a glass of milk a shot. Turns out it is known to contain melatonin. All right, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes. Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. So I'm still looking for answers to my questions about what is Purana Solution. And uh, the 1927 Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology went to psychiatrist Julius Wagner Joreg of Austria for his use of pyrotherapy. What is pyrotherapy? Our number is 514 
text to 514-800. And of course, you can also call or text your questions about any scientific issue with which I may be able to help. So I was talking about uh, uh, melatonin uh, before and uh, the fact that it is actually found in a number of foods and uh, that is enough to allow it to be sold as a dietary supplement. But this brings up you know, the question of when is a substance a food and when is it a drug? And that may sound like a simple question, but the answer can be complicated. I'm going to give you a very interesting story here that takes us back a, a few years, but it's a classic. Suppose you take some rice, inoculate it with type of yeast, let it ferment for a while, and then eat it directly, or use it to flavor some dish. I think everyone would agree that this is a food. After all, there's not much difference between this process and that used to making bread rice by adding yeast. But what if you let the yeast grow on the rice, mill the rice, put it into pills, and sell it as a cholesterol-lowering supplement? Is that still a food? Well, not according to the FDA in the U.S. When a company called Pharmanex tried to sell a red yeast preparation as a cholesterol-lowering dietary supplement, the FDA stepped in and claimed that this product, they called it cholestin, uh, was an unapproved drug. Why? Because it contained a substance that could lower cholesterol by interfering with an enzyme in the liver responsible for cholesterol synthesis. And that substance happened to be identical with lovastatin, the active ingredient in a prescription medication known as Mevacor. Indeed, lovastatin was produced by a fermentation process similar to red yeast rice. But of course, the compound was isolated, purified, and standardized. Merck, the producer of Mevacor, objected to the sales of cholestin as a natural cholesterol-lowering agent, claiming that Pharmanex had developed a process to concentrate the lovastatin level of its product, making it a drug, not a dietary supplement. And if it was a drug, it infringed on Merck's patent. Well, the FDA agreed, further pointing out that dietary supplements were not regulated like drugs and that the levels of lovastatin and cholestin were not standardized. The claim that the product could lower cholesterol could also lead to people self-medicating without appropriate monitoring by a physician. After all, it is known that drugs of this variety, the statins, can have side effects ranging from muscle degeneration to liver problems. So based on those arguments, FDA declared cholestin an unapproved drug and ordered it off the market. The company appealed, but lost the appeal. The natural product industry was up in arms, saying that a cheap, effective natural medication was being denied to the public because of the interest of a giant pharmaceutical company. Well, actually, the cost of cholestin was almost the same as that of Mevacor. So what happened here? Uh, no longer can the product be sold with significant amounts of lovastatin, even though it is a natural um, substance. But because the amounts cannot be regulated, uh, and because the company was saying that this could lower cholesterol, it was deemed to be a, a drug and therefore taken off the market. But you'll notice that you can go into a health food store these days and still buy red yeast rice. But they will not say on the label 
uh, that it uh, lowers cholesterol. They'll say something like it it uh, uh, it may improve arterial health or you know some sort of weasel uh, claim like that. But the fact is that it cannot contain any significant amounts of lovastatin. Otherwise, it would not be allowed to be sold. So there's not much use buying it because it's not going to have a, a cholesterol-lowering uh, uh, effect. So that's the, uh, that's the story with the red yeast uh, rice. And, and uh, uh, there really isn't anything for, uh, to, to promote this. All right. Uh, I think we have a caller waiting. Let's go to Alliance. Hi. Who do we have? Oh, hello. Is it me? Hi. They didn't ask me my name, so I wasn't sure. Who it was. Go okay. ahead. I'd like to have a, see if I have the answer for your pyro treatment. I, okay. Uh, I actually observed something being done during the during the last war in Warsaw. During the war, it was done on my on my older brother. It's glass cups that were heated the air inside when we heated one by one and placed on his back. There were glass cups, and they were it was a treatment for something. Right. You're talking about cupping, which something is something like uh, that. Yeah. In Polish, cupping. we called it's, it banki. <laughs> yeah, it's quite different from pyrotherapy. Oh, it's so not it the isn't same. it isn't the correct answer. However, it does bring up an interesting issue because this this business of cupping is actually quite uh, popular. I see, and it has a, a interesting you know scientific explanation. You take a cup, which you know it's mostly glass, but it it uh, it could be porcelain, it, you know, and you heat up the air inside of it. That's right. And yeah. then you very quickly clamp it onto the body, onto the skin, so that. Uh, the hot air cools down and uh, cold air occupies a smaller volume than hot air. So therefore there's a partial vacuum created there right. and the skin is kind of sucked up into the, into the cup. That's right. That's and the right. argument of these uh, cupping therapists is that this technique removes toxins from the body. Okay. There is absolutely no scientific veri verity to that. It makes no sense whatsoever. You're not going to draw out anything through the skin. But how is it then that you have so many people who claim that they are helped by this therapy? And I think the answer here is pretty straightforward. It is the good old placebo effect. Psychologically. If, right. if you believe that something is going to be good for you, very often it is. The mind can be a very, very powerful weapon against disease. Yeah, right. But uh, I can tell you that there's no scientific reason that this therapy should should work. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Thank you. All right. You. So, but anyway, it's you know it's interesting to to talk about, yeah. and uh, you have many many uh, athletes even who claim that oh, you know they perform better after they have been uh, cupped. Uh, Michael Phelps, I think, was one of those, uh, the, the swimmer, uh, who said that he was helped by uh, uh, cupping. And there are many celebrities who uh, undergo this, uh, this treatment. Okay, but uh, no, that's not the answer. So I'm still looking for the answer to the question about what is pyrotherapy. And uh, you know, well, obviously, it has to be quite significant if a Nobel Prize was awarded because uh, of it. And the 1927 Nobel Prize in medicine, indeed, was awarded for uh, pyrotherapy. Okay, so uh, we've got those questions still hanging uh, out there. 
Let me add one more so that you can uh, think about this while we will listen to the news. What is common to the elements francium, indium, scandium, polonium, and dubnium? These are all elements. You'll find them in the periodic table. What is common to francium, indium, scandium, polonium, and dubnium? If you don't know the answer, you can text us 514-790-0800 or give us a call at 514-790-0800. Let's see what's happening out there in the world. We'll check CTV News. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. the answer to one of my questions steve yes uh, you were asking about cryotherapy is that correct pyrotherapy pyro pyro with a p okay that yes that i'm not sure i thought it was cryotherapy Sorry. all right I know you can tell us about you can tell us well, about cry- cryotherapy cryotherapy too. is ice massage it's very effective for helping with injuries often used with athletes Yes, this is co- this is correct. Cryotherapy uses cold temperatures. Yeah. All right, that will give a clue also about pyrotherapy, but that question is uh, still out there. Now, yeah, I've well, had a couple of wrong fire, answers. Right? Uh-huh, well, yeah, so what is pyrotherapy? I beg your pardon? So what is pyrotherapy? Well, it would be therapy with heat, extreme heat. Yes, that's what it, well, it is extreme heat. But more specifically, it is by inducing fever. So it's a very interesting story that, uh, you know, for which a Nobel Prize was uh, awarded. So it's the the practice of inducing fever for therapeutic purposes. And uh, Julius Wagner Jureg noted that insane patients sometimes became more sane after they had an episode of of fever. And uh, especially end-stage syphilis. Uh, that comes with insanity. And Wagner Jureg inoculated uh, patients who were suffering from uh, syphilis with blood from a malarial patient. And this, of course, induced a fever in them. And uh, if it worked, if they became more sane, the malaria was treated with uh, quinine. Now, this was all done in a hospital. And, uh, you know, it, it, it sounds, uh, these days, it sounds uh, rather like a ridiculous treatment. But this was in the pre-antibiotic era when they had no other treatment for syphilis. And, of course, when penicillin was introduced, that supplanted this, uh, this treatment. But in 1927, he received a Nobel Prize uh, for this. There is a, a, a skeleton in uh, the closet of Julius Wagner uh, Jureg. He was a Nazi sympathizer, and uh, he uh, was fervently uh, anti-Semitic. He also was a eugenist. He believed that uh, uh, people who were diseased in some way, especially mentally ill people, should be done away with to kind of purify uh, society. And uh, he, uh, being a psychiatrist, I mean, surprisingly, you know, being a psychiatrist, he had these uh, ideas about uh, 
eugenics. He also advocated that mentally ill people should be sterilized. So he was uh, sort of a sketchy person, but he did receive the Nobel Prize for his treatment of terminal syphilis. Uh, Al Capone uh, probably could have used that treatment. He died from terminal syphilis that he picked up in a, in a brothel. All right, so we have the answer to that one. I'm still looking for the answer to the Purana solution, what that is, and uh, also for the connection between francium, indium, scandium, polonium, and dubnium. A couple of you have said that the connection is uh, that they all end in ium, I-U-M. Uh, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm look, looking for something a bit more uh, specific than, than that. So what do those elements uh, uh, have in common. If you know, you give us a call at 514-790-800 or text us at 514-800. Okay, uh, question texted in, is there a hand vacuum which is able to pick up diatomaceous earth without becoming damaged? Uh, diatomaceous earth is a very, very fine powder. It's actually the exoskeleton of some uh, marine creatures. It is mostly uh, calcium carbonate. It is used in various filtration media, and uh, uh, it can come in different grain sizes. And so I, I'm not sure, you know, why uh, what the problem is. I mean, vacuum cleaners will pick up diatomaceous earth. I don't know why they would become damaged. I mean, the suction goes straight into the into the bag or into the container. So I'm not exactly sure what prompted that question. Maybe the questioner can clarify what uh, uh, what it is that they mean and what it is that they are uh, concerned about with that. Okay, uh, let's uh, go to Stockholm for a minute, okay? Uh, because I want to tell you an interesting story uh, about there. You probably have heard of polyethylene glycol. Uh, you maybe in several contexts. It's it's very commonly used as a laxative. Uh, you'll find it as a texturizing agent in creams. You'll find it on the label of toothpaste. It's a thickening agent. You'll find it as an anti-foaming agent in beverages, and uh, it's also an ingredient in personal lubricants. And there's another connection that you may have heard of with polypropylene uh, glycol or polyethylene glycol. Uh, it is uh, used to encapsulate the spike protein in COVID-19 vaccines, and it has been blamed for some rare allergic reactions there. But uh, there's yet another fascinating use for this chemical, and you will find it at the Vasa Museum in Stockholm, which I luckily managed to, to visit a few years ago, and it's a fascinating place. Uh, in 1626, Gustavus Adolphus, king of Sweden, had a flagship built for his navy, and that was to be state-of-the-art. Well, it seems the king was not as adept at designing ships as he thought he was, because the Vasa sank almost immediately after being launched, taking 150 men to the bottom of the ocean with it. And that is where the ship sat, just outside of Stockholm Harbor, until 1961, when it was raised using cables, after a plan to raise it by stuffing it with ping pong balls was scuttled. But pretty soon there was a problem. As the wood began to dry out, it started to shrink 
and crack. A possible solution was to replace the water that had filled the spaces in the wood with another substance that would stay put. Well, polyethylene glycol is when dissolved in, in water makes for a thick, thick solution. And it turned out to be just right. But this was not an overnight success story. For 17 years, the VASA was regularly sprayed with a solution of polyethylene glycol until all the water in the wood had been replaced by this solution. Well, today you can view the ship and be amazed at the elaborate woodwork that you will see. And in fact, it's Stockholm's premier tourist attraction. But the ship is not out of the water, as it were, because sulfate-reducing bacteria from ocean water are slowly producing sulfuric acid within the wood. And this is aided by the catalytic action of iron in the hull's nails. And the acid is eating away the wood. Well, there are plans now to spray with something called pentetic acid, a chemical that binds iron and can prevent it from acting as a catalyst. And I can tell you that seeing a ship that is close to 400 years old and looking as it did the day it was launched is, is really quite awe-inspiring. And uh, that's all because of, uh, of polyethylene glycol. So if you ever do get a chance to visit uh, Stockholm, uh, do not miss the Vasa Museum. Uh, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating to see this ship that's hundreds of years old with all of the elaborate carvings on it as it is slowly being uh, restored. And of course, there's many other things to see in Stockholm. You can visit the hall, as I did, where the uh, Nobel Prize dinner uh, is held when, you know, after the prizes are awarded, the, the invited guests have this large elaborate dinner and you can view the hall where, uh, where this takes place. And of course, for anyone interested in science, that is uh, almost a religious experience. So you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Let's check, see what is going on out there with traffic. We'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figuring out what's true. I think we have Peter waiting on the line. Hey, Peter. Hi, how are you? Okay. Um... I think I have the answer to that, Piranha Solution. Okay. Uh, it says it's a, it's a concentrate, a mixture of concentrated sulfuric acid and hydrogen peroxide to remove the trace elements, trace, trace amounts of organic residues. And it's, That's I, it. It's, I, a, it's a cleaning agent that we yeah. use in the lab. It's yeah, extremely but costly. Here that but... it, they, could, they could use it on, on chicken when they're when they're cleaning chicken or something like that? No, no, no. You would use it on glassware or any kind of equipment that is yeah. very mucky or stained. You would not okay. use it on food. You not use it on food. I'm not on but, food, uh, okay. It will, it will remove uh, uh, all kinds of dirt from glassware. And okay. uh, it's commonly used in the laboratory to clean glassware, but it's a very, very caustic solution. And the reason yeah. it's called piranha solution, because it eats everything. 
like the piranha. Yes, it's yeah. Now, uh, do you have do you have time uh, for a question from me? Sure. Uh, I used to have you as a teacher in the 1980s. Uh, you used to teach uh, at Dawson College for a long no, way ago. But well, not in the 19 in the 1970s. Uh, 80, 82 or 83, I think. Anyway, at Dawson, yeah, with uh, this other teacher called Ariel Fenster. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I had your course and we had a good time there. Uh, well, I wanted to ask you, yeah. when it's hot and humid outside, okay, like it's not hot and humid right now, but in the summer, we had a we had a discussion about this and saying, should people take a, a hot shower, a cold shower, or, a, or a, like a warm shower so they can feel, feel more cooler, cooler in the summer when it's hot and humid? Uh, I think a cool <laughs> shower will, will cool you down more quickly than a hot shower. Yeah. Uh, oh. I know that, that uh, I mean, this is, uh, you know, a question that, that often comes up because some people claim that when you take a hot shower, yes. the hot water evaporates more quickly from your skin. Yeah. And okay. as it evaporates, it sucks up heat from the skin. Okay. Uh, but I think that uh, the effect of a cold shower is, is better than that. It's better than Although that. a warm shower may be more comfy than cold one but i think the cold shower will cool you down more quickly okay okay all right all right thank thanks very much, very much. Take care. bye bye okay uh so apparently the diatomaceous earth question is that because of of the the possibility that uh it might get into the motor of the uh, of the vacuum cleaner uh so i don't i don't know uh hmm. The way that you know, I know that the vacuum cleaner works, and I don't see how it would get into the uh, into the uh, motor. So um, yeah, but uh, I mean, diatomaceous earth basically is is um, as I said, it's the exoskeleton of of uh, small animals, and it's a mixture of of silicates and carbonates, and uh, but it can be very finely powdered, and so maybe it gets. In, I don't know. It maybe it gets into the uh, mechanics of the machine, not sure. Okay, let me talk a little bit about cucumbers. Why? Because I like them. And uh, I like to make uh, chicken paprikash, which is a classic Hungarian dish. And the uh, thing that absolutely goes along with it well is, is a cucumber salad. But it annoys me when I see claims that cucumbers are some sort of superfood. Uh, and I've seen this, you know, there are all kinds of articles about superfoods and claim that cucumbers fight diabetes, they strengthen the bones, they regulate blood pressure, prevent cancer. I mean, these kind of claims make, drive me crazy. Uh, it's, it's based on the fact that there are nutrients found in cucumbers like fiber, calcium, potassium, vitamin C. And yeah, these are present in cucumbers but not in any kind of amount that will have a therapeutic uh, effect. What else do cucumbers have? Water. They have the highest water content of any food at 96%. And if uh, just compare watermelon, that has only 97, 90% water. So with, you know, when you have 96% water in a cucumber, <laughs> there's not much room for other nutrients. So a 75 gram cube contains about 12 milligrams of calcium that hardly makes a dent in the World Health Organization's recommendation of around 500 milligrams a day. And fiber, 
about one gram. Compare that to the 25 to 30 grams we should consume per day. By all means, make cucumbers or other part of your diet. They taste good. They contain little sugar, no fat, so they're fine for diabetics. However, suggestions that they have wondrous health properties are way off base. No single food should be looked at as some sort of savior or as a devil in disguise. We can talk about healthy diets and poor diets. It is possible to have a healthy diet without ever eating a cucumber or an unhealthy one filled with cucumbers. Now, it's also something else to remember. If you pickle those cucumbers, you'll be adding a lot of salt. Pickling a 75-gram cuke will lead to an intake of around 800 milligrams of sodium, about half of the sodium that one should consume a day. Of course, it's, you know, there's a lot of debate about just how much sodium one should uh, consume a day. Uh, 2,300 milligrams is, is what is often talked about, but I, I, I think less in this case is better. Less sodium uh, uh, consumed is better. And, and cucumbers or uh, pickle, pickles are very, very high in, um, in salt. Uh, it's not a question of never eating those, of course. I never say never about anything, but you don't want to overdo this. But anyway, I got onto this topic because I was talking about cucumber salad to go together with my uh, chicken paprikash. And um, uh, cucumber salad is, 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 is quite easy to make. Uh, so you uh, take a, a, a cucumber and you slice it very, very thin, very thin, almost, I like to do it almost paper, paper thin. And then you add uh, salt, uh, nowhere near 800 milligrams. You, you add a little, just sprinkle a little bit of salt on it, mix it in, and let it sit for a while because the salt will then draw moisture out of the uh, cucumbers. And uh, then you can squeeze the cucumbers and, and uh, discard that, uh, the water. And then you replace it with... Uh, a mixture of water and vinegar with a tiny bit of sugar added to it. And I also like to very, very thinly sliced uh, onions into it. Mix that all in, add the dressing, which I, I said is, uh, well, I, I, I use uh, about, uh, I kind of eyeball it, but it's about, uh, I'd say 30% vinegar, 70% uh, uh, water. And I add a little bit of salt to it, mix it all in. And when you serve it, you sprinkle some paprika on top of it. Uh, that makes it taste good and also gives it a, a very, very nice uh, appearance. And you serve that along with your chicken paprikash. How do you make that? Very simple. Uh, you um, fry uh, onions in a very thin layer of oil uh, until they become translucent. Uh, you then... Um, Add your pieces of, of chicken. Do not use breast. That's okay for schnitzel, but, but uh, for the chicken paprikash, you want to use uh, thighs or legs. Add the chicken into the hot oil and, and, and the, uh, the onions. Turn it until it becomes a little bit brown on the outside. Then you add, uh, depending, of course, on how much chicken you use, you add chopped tomato. You add a chopped green uh, pepper and uh, chopped garlic. Uh, the green pepper and the tomato will release enough moisture so that at that point you don't have to add any water. Uh, you add your paprika, and once again, that's to taste, but it should look really quite red once you've added the paprika. And then you slowly cook it 
And if you find that it, it starts to, to become too dry, you add a little bit of, of uh, water. So it's not very hard to make. And once it's done, I mean, chicken doesn't take long, you know, maybe 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, mix in a little bit of sour cream, serve it with your cucumber salad, and there's our cooking lesson for the day. And that's it. We have run out of time. But rest assured, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>